Psalm, or sorry, Isaiah 46 is where we're going to be this morning. Isaiah chapter 46. Um, we are starting a new series today uh, called Sovereign. We'll start this way. I want to read you something from the American memoirist and poet Maya Angelou, something that she famously said. A person is the product of their dreams. So make sure to dream great dreams. And then... Try to live your dream. From our earliest moments in life, you and I are encouraged to dream. To dream. To think of things that are beyond us, outside of us. Dreams aren't just something that happen to us when we sleep. Quite often they happen a lot more when we're awake. And dreams are usually centered on us. They're centered on ourselves, what we want, what will make us feel happy and safe and secure. Dreams are the things that we fashion, that we imagine, that we create in our minds. We dream about something or someone or someplace that's more satisfying or more amazing, perhaps, than the current reality in which we find ourselves. Dreams can be things that we want to achieve personally or professionally, or creatively. We may dream of success, or of love, or material possessions, or any number of things. But after we invent or create that thing that we want, then the hard part starts. We realize we have to follow that dream. We have to chase that dream. There are things that we must do to see our dream realized. And quite often, if you were like me, you probably have had these dreams that you created for your life, these things that you planned out, and then you saw them fail. Quite often, many of our dreams fail. They don't come to fruition, and sometimes we end up disappointed, and we certainly realize that we are in control of our future. What if I told you that the death of your dreams is one of the best things that could ever happen to you? That the death of your dreams, the things that you wanted, the things that you wished for, the things that you hoped, the things that you thought would make you feel satisfied and happy and safe and secure and comfortable. What if the death of that dream was actually the best thing that could happen to you? Because here's the thing. The dream dies when you realize you're not in control. You can't make it happen. But there's something beautiful about that. Something amazing, and it's this. Once we realize that we're not in control of our future, we can actually see and trust the God who is. Today we begin a series entitled Sovereign, and over the next four weeks we're going to look at the sovereignty of God, finding out that God is Lord over all creation, including you and I, in every moment. Every subsequent breath that you breathe after the one you're breathing right now, God is sovereign over that. In your life and all of history, past, present, and future, we're going to begin today by saying that God is not only beyond compared to what we could dream for ourselves. God is beyond anything like our feeble and foolish little dreams. That there is no other God like him and how that is good news for us. This is Isaiah chapter 46 beginning in verse 1. It says this. Bell bows down. Nebo stoops. 
Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear, I will carry, and will save. To whom will you liken me and make me equal, and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith, and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders, they carry it, they set it in its place, and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to your mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart. You who are far from righteousness, I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. This is the word of the Lord to which we say together. Thanks be to God. Three big things we're going to see in this text today. Three encouraging things that are going to help us understand the sovereignty of God and why His control, His order, His lordship, His plans are so much better than anything that we could dream up or fashion or create for ourselves and why it's good news for us. These three things. Here's the first one. There is none like God. There is none like God. Second, God is sovereign over all creation. God is sovereign over all creation. And third, God has come near to save. So there's none like God. Verses 1 through 7 reveal this truth. For what in the world can we compare to God? What can be compared to God? Now, that sounds like a ridiculous question, but this is the central struggle of all people in the Bible, which is why God is so concerned with idolatry. Look at verses 1 and 2, and you find these, Bel and Nebo, not terribly popular names now. These are Babylonian gods that the prophet Isaiah describes as being carried on weary beasts. He's describing these gods as man-made, inanimate images. So Babylon and, and, and people of Assyria and all of those that surrounded the people of Judah in this day, not only those who took them in captivity, but after captivity, those who worshipped around them were constantly revering gods that were created. Gods that were fashioned out of a substance. Gods that were made of wood or gods that were made of gold or of silver or of stone. And in this 
passage, the prophet Isaiah is pointing out and is making very, very clear that these gods are actually no gods at all. They're crude objects, so much so that they can't even move. Now, I want you to think about this. He describes them as being born as burdens. They've been dreamed up to satisfy the desires of some rebellious people, some gods that have been made, and now this is what happens with them. And you're going to see in these next few verses the very big contrast and ultimately why God will tell his people and communicate to them that he is beyond compare. Because look at these idols. They stoop. They bow down together. What does that mean? He's saying that they are so ineffectual for the thing that they've been created. They're so futile as a God that they have to be transported on the backs of beasts of burden, of oxen, of steer, of donkeys. These gods are not real at all. They can't save. They can't help. They can't in any way provide life for the people who revere and worship them. When he uses the language that describes them stooping, when Isaiah says that they stoop, that they bow down together, he's speaking ultimately not just of the idols, but of the people who worship them, saying this, that you're all going down together. You're all stooping your bowing into captivity together. They can't save themselves. In fact, this is quite ironic because these are the very people who've oppressed God's people, the remnant of Israel, the people of Judah for so long. And in fact, they're the ones who are not only going to face ultimately military captivity, but spiritual captivity. They're going to be reduced to nothing. But God is different. Look at the contrast in verses 3 and 4. God is not something that is fashioned, something that is made, and something that has to be carried or transported. In fact, God says very clearly to his people, I've borne you. I've carried you. I'm not a God to be carried or transported. In fact, I'm the God who has carried you past, present, and future. Look at how God describes what he's done for Israel. He says that you've been born by me from... Before your birth. Before your birth. What does that mean? This is an echo. This is a, this is a, there's a tie to Ephesians chapter 1. Think about Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him. Look at this phrase. Before. The foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. This is what God has done for us. Known us from before you were born. Not just that, he's carried us from the womb. It's not just that he knew us before, but he knew us in it. Think about Psalm 139. 
Think about these verses in 13 through 16 and think about what's articulated about who God is and what he's done. For you form my inward parts. You knit me together where? In my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. It's not only that God predestined us, that God knew us before the foundation of the world, but also that we've been carried along from the womb. As these intricate things are happening, they are not hidden from God. It is God who has done it together. And we get this other beautiful picture that there is no God like him because the days that were formed for us, when there as yet were none of them, they were known by him. God has known these things. Look back into Isaiah 46 and this final portion of verse 4. Not only have we been born by God and carried along by him before birth and from the womb, even to old age. He says, I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. There's this unique, beautiful promise found throughout the scriptures. Deuteronomy 31, 38, 1 Chronicles 28, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. This resonant picture of this, that God will never leave us or forsake us. He's not just with us from before the beginning and at the beginning, but always even to the end. This is a God that is very different than the gods, the idols that are fashioned, the gods that have been dreamed up, the gods that have been imagined in this setting. Look at verses 5 through 7 and you'll see this. This comparison that is foolish. God says, who do you compare me to? And he describes the pattern of idolatry so simply. He just says, people take something precious like gold or silver and they commission it to be fashioned into a God. But what does it do? It can't move. It can't hear a cry for help. It can't answer. It certainly cannot save. Our God is like no other. And you get to this point and you may say, Michael, I understand this. This makes total sense. Of course, none of these other things could be God. Of course, no inanimate object that I would fashion could be a God. Of course, no wood or no stone or no silver or gold could be a God. That's not the world we live in. Why are you talking about these things? We talked about the central struggle of people of the Bible genuinely being idolatry. But what if that's not only for the people of the Bible? What if that's for you and I? What if worshiping idols is exactly our struggle? This is what John Calvin says in his famous work, Institutes. The human heart is a perpetual idol factory. The human heart is a perpetual idol factory. What does this mean? What does it mean that that my heart cranks out idols? Like in a factory sense, like it just moves them along. What, what does that mean? Well, this is what Tim Keller would say, and I think he does it in a very simple and helpful way. Keller says this, The human heart is an idle factory that takes good things like a successful career, love, material possessions, even family, and turns them into the ultimate things. 
our hearts deify them as the very center of our lives because we think they can give us significance and security, safety, and fulfillment if we attain them. You know what that sounds like? It sounds like chasing the wrong dreams. It sounds like inventing something, taking something, and moving it from its proper place and placing it where the Lord should be. We're either focused on Christ as all of life, the source of life, walking by the Spirit, in conjunction with the Lord who is the giver of life, or we're turning to idols. And it sounds foolish and it sounds so silly, but I want you to think about these things. You and I have a propensity to, have a tendency to, think that if I just had this, then everything will be okay. If I just had this relationship, if I just had this thing, this material thing, if I just had this home, if we just lived in this place, if I could just earn this degree or if I could just get this job then we'd be satisfied. But those things don't satisfy us. Look, Jerry Seinfeld has this incredible bit that he did on Fallon years ago where he talks about our houses are literally just the places where we store our stuff as it turns into garbage. And that everything is just kind of on the path to becoming garbage. It's somewhere in the process, right? And look, I know this for a fact, and you do too, because you and I all celebrate this thing that our lovely city does for us, and it's called Bulk Trash Day. How many of you put stuff out at Bulk Trash Day? You're putting stuff out that was from, you know, two years before and three years before. Look, we just came out of the season of Christmas. We got all this stuff that we thought we needed, we thought would make us happy, that we thought would satisfy us, be a balm to our heart in a moment. It's all this stuff. And like it's going to go, that stuff, it's going to go to the closet, right? And the closet's a place where it'll stay for a while, but then it goes to the dreaded garage. Like, Jerry says this, he's like, look, once the thing goes to the garage, it doesn't come back into the house. It never makes it back into the house. The garage is like literally the next place before it goes to the trash, to bolt trash day. And you and I, as silly as it sounds, will take moments where we'll place our joy, our security, our satisfaction, our hope, our trust, our rest, not only in our current circumstances, but the things that we can acquire. We fashion idols in our heart. But the good news for us is that there is no other God. There is none like our God. Second, God is sovereign over all creation. The beautiful depiction that we're given in this passage is that God is sovereign all over creation and we see that He is Lord. That the things that He says come to pass. Look specifically into verse 10 and see the unique nature of our God. God speaks and it happens. He, verse 10 says this, declares the end from the beginning. From ancient times, things not yet done. This is not just a moment in the present that has been declared, but the end has been declared from the very beginning. There is nothing outside of God's, or God's foreknowledge of His will. We read in Revelation 21.5 that Jesus makes all things new, and He's been doing that from the very beginning. 
from the very beginning of creation, it has been declared. God is not surprised by what comes next for us. He declares the end from the beginning. Everything that he purposes comes to pass. And the instruction from God to his people in this moment, what Isaiah would say to them is this, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to your mind. Three things that that really are, are just embedded in this passage that are practical for us to understand how to embrace and reckon with the God who is sovereign over all creation. One, we need to remember who He is and what He's done. That's why we sing songs like, Great is Thy Faithfulness. We sing together, we proclaim together what God has done. He says, don't forget who I am. Second, we're called to stand firm. We're to be fixed on this. We're to be fixed on the reality That because what God has done in the past has come true, we can trust that what he says will come in the future will be true as well. That he's Lord over everything and nothing is outside him. We're called to stand firm. This is really a fix your eyes type moment that Isaiah gives the people of Israel and that the Lord wants to give us. Paul would use similar language in Colossians 3, right? He'd say, set your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. This is the challenge for us, to remember who God is and fix our eyes on Him. Third, he says this, recall it to your heart and mind. Now you read it and it just says mind, but the Hebrew here is so nuanced that it's more than just something mental. It's actually the very action of the heart, because the mind here, the heart here, what Isaiah is saying, in your innermost place, the very core of you, Recall, recount, tell your heart what God has done. In the same way that Stephen instructed us with regard to the psalm earlier, right? Bless the Lord, O my soul. Who's the, who's the psalmist talking to? The psalmist is talking to himself. He's telling himself to bless the Lord. In the same way, we must preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ to ourselves. We must fix our eyes on Jesus. We must remember what God has done. He accomplishes his purposes. Scripture teaches that God controls everything. There's no greater picture of this found than in Jesus, who fulfills the law and the prophets. But sometimes I think for us, God's sovereignty can become this thing that seems very impersonal or mechanical. We almost see it as if if there's, you know, God pulling levers, pressing buttons, Behind the curtain, Wizard of Oz type stuff. That sovereignty means just he's in control and he orders all things. And that, if we think of it only in that way, then it feels very mechanical. It doesn't feel personal at all. But the beauty of what this passage illustrates is that God in his sovereignty, in his ability to bring all of these purposes to pass, everything that he decrees from the beginning of the end will happen. God is incredibly incredibly personal in his sovereignty. Because we don't have a God that's just beyond compare. We don't have a God that's just sovereign, but he's also sovereign over saving us. 
We have a God like no other, a God that is sovereign over all creation, and third, a God that has come near to save. A God that has come near to save. Look at verses 12 and 13. Listen to me, he says, you stubborn of heart. You who are far from righteousness, I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off and my salvation will not delay. First, you need to see who God is speaking to. He's speaking to those who are stubborn of heart. Those who are the ones who are drifting and and going back and forth between pursuing Him and actually following heart idols. These are those who are prone to wander and they feel it. They're failing to trust. They're failing to find hope continually in God. And they're turning to and they're trusting created things rather than the Creator. So what's God's response to a failing people? He says, I bring near my righteousness. How does that happen? How does God's righteousness come near? Well, this is how. In the good news of Jesus Christ. Isaiah is writing about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The nearness of of God that has come to us. How near, how close has God come to us? So much so that He took on our flesh. This is John's Gospel, chapter 1, and verse 14. It says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. To a stubborn, idolatrous people. To a rebellious people who forget God time and time and time again. This God like no other. This God that is sovereign over all creation. That is Lord of everything. He comes near to us by taking on our flesh. In a corporeal manner for all of us. Takes on the brokenness of of flesh and yet does not sin so that we might have life. That flesh is crucified. This is what happens on the cross. God has come near. How has He brought His righteousness near? Look at this. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake He made Him To be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become what? The righteousness of God. God has come near to us. He's given us his righteousness in Jesus. This is the glorious hope that we have. This is the the thing that ought to be most hopeful for us. That we can let every little dream that we've ever had die. If you're new here, I want to tell you that it probably sounds like a bummer in this moment, okay? But this is our glorious hope. That I don't have to construct an idea of what my life could be. I don't have to look outside and take these things that God has created to glorify Him and worship them as if that's what's going to bring me safety and satisfaction and joy and hope. No. Can trust in the fact, I can rest in the fact that our God is like no other. 
that he is sovereign, that he has authored all of creation, he is Lord over it, and that that beauty and majesty and power is not impersonal, but it's come near to me. It's come near to you in Jesus Christ so that you can be saved. This is our hope. And it's something that's beyond any of our wildest dreams. So what do we do with this? What do we take from this text? And, and, and what do we say, this is how this is going to impact my life. This is going to, how it's going to impact my day. How it's going to impact my week. Three very succinct and specific application points for us, I think, are in this text. Number one, we need to look for idols in our life. Is there anything that's become the center of our life, the place where we find safety, where we find joy, where we find security, where we seemingly find life that can truly only be found in Jesus? Look for idols in your life. As we find them, let's confess to the Lord and let's repent and turn back to Him. Second, we're called to remember We sing a song like, great is thy faithfulness, and we can say, God, you've been faithful, you've been faithful, you've been faithful. Quite often, our struggle is we just don't remember how. We've forgotten how. I don't know if this is like a generational thing or it's just something that maybe maybe we don't do as much anymore, but I remember growing up with a hymn, Count Your Blessings. Anybody remember that? How did you count them? As a bulk group? Oh, that's not what the song says. You count them one by one. One of the best ways that we can engage and remember what God has done for us is to have real conversations with each other and to bring to mind, to remember, to think through the times in which we've seen God show His mercy, show His grace, show His goodness to us. Talk through these things with somebody that's in your community group. Maybe it's a close friend. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's your children. But I would encourage you this week to find somebody and say, you know what, I want to I think about the things that God's done in my life. I want to remember, and I guarantee you, as you start to piece those things together, whether it's moments from this week or moments from this year or moments from the last five years or ten years, all you're going to see is that He's sovereignly been in control over all things the whole time, and He's loved you better than you could ever imagine. So look for idols in your life. Take opportunity to remember. And finally, third... Set these things in your heart. That phrase in verse 8, recall it to mind, goes a step deeper than even just remembering. It's saying, set it in the innermost part of you. Remember what God's done so much that you say it to yourself again and again. Not just that you recognize and that you remember and you're fixed on it, but it becomes embedded in you, in the deepest place within you. So here's what I encourage you to do. Make a list of the things that God has done so that you can recall them to your heart and mind, not just in a conversation, but consistently. Look, we make notes all the time. We make sticky notes, right? And we write down the things that we need from the store, right? We write down milk, we write down orange juice, we write down eggs. We don't write on eggs because we can afford eggs. But 
we make lists all the time of stuff that we need. You know what I need? I need to remember what God's done for me. Every day, more than anything else, when I wake up, I need to see new mercies. And I need to remember that I was dead in my trespasses and sin. And God made me alive in Christ. Thanks be to God. That's what I need to remember. So look for idols in your life. Remember what God has done. And then make a list so that God can set these things in your heart. Um, that verse in 2 Corinthians 5.21 um, is preceded by this. Paul is saying to this group of people, he's saying, I implore you, I beg you, on behalf of Jesus Christ, be reconciled to God. And that's what I would implore you to today as well. If you've trusted Christ, and recognize there's no other God, recognize his sovereignty and his order, his lordship over all things. Recognize that he has come to save you in Jesus. And if you haven't trusted Jesus, I would urge you to believe that same truth, perhaps for the first time. As our service draws to a conclusion today, we're going to take these last few moments to, to worship together. The worship band's going to come, and we're going to sing of the very promises of God. We're going to echo the things of the Scripture. We're going to state that what He says He will do. And then we'll receive the promise of God, the benediction. What God says and how He's going to bless us. But after the service, if you have not trusted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior... Maybe you're beginning to believe. Man, I would encourage you to come and find myself and others here who want to pray with you, who want to talk with you, who want to help you experience and see and know the God that is like no other. The God that's sovereign over everything. The God that's come near to save you. To see that that's more than you could have ever dreamed. If you will, pray with me. Heavenly Father, in these moments together, um, in recognition of your word, Father, we long to confess that you are the one who never leaves and never forsakes us. Father, before the foundation of the world, you chose us. Father, you knit us together in our mother's inmost parts. There's no God like you. There's none who does what he says he will do, who keeps his promises apart from you. And so this morning, Father, we confess this. That you, from age to age, keep your promises for your glory and for our good. Help us rest in that. Help us enjoy that. Father, let us trust in you. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.